Good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. Sorry, I'm struggling to get this thing back pocketed. Uh, it's so great to see you here this morning. And thank you, Brian, so much for that song. That's one of my favorite songs ever, actually, uh, by Josh Gerrels at the table. And it's just really powerful and it's putting it in my pocket. And just uh, speaks to exactly what we're talking about today. And that is the Jesus table, which he, sing, sung, he sung about, inviting people to table and fellowship with God. But before we get going, I'd like for you to turn in your bulletins, if you have any, maybe receive them when you entered. Uh, and there's a spot there for taking notes in that pa- on that paper. And you can draw, you can write questions, you can write prayers. Uh, and then at the end of the service, it would be great as you're exiting if you could drop them off in the wooden boxes on the, on the sides. Uh, that way we know what people are thinking, what to pray for, how people are processing, and just helps us stay more engaged in what all of you are thinking. So as was mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Lent. Ash Wednesday was last uh, Wednesday, and it was a great day of prayer and reflection. And so today is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're starting a new sermon series called The Jesus Table. You see a picture of plates and, silver, or, and cups, uh, and it's a time where we're going to talk about the various teachings Jesus gives us around the table as he's eating with people in the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus' life here on earth. And you might be thinking, oh, there, there can't really be that many stories around the table or that many teachings around the table. And I'll tell you, you'll see very quickly that Jesus spent a majority of his ministry around the table. That's why we call it the Jesus table. In fact, there are some people, uh, some scholars, who believe that Jesus, when he envisioned the church, he didn't envision it the way we have it now, not that that's bad, but he envisioned a table. He envisioned the church being something that met around food and that gathered around food to worship him, to learn more about him, and to grow uh, with him and as a community. And our goal, this uh, Lent as a church, our hope is for everybody to invite somebody uh, to their table. Invite somebody to the Jesus table. Uh, whether that's at work, maybe normally you work over your lunch break, say, hey, would you like to eat with me today and experience community? Or invite someone to your home or go out to eat. Or on Monday nights, we have what we call community dinner or dinner church, which meets at Magnuson Park. And you'd always be welcome to come there to fellowship with people over the table. And so today is an introduction to this series. And we'll be talking about food in the Bible, feasting in the Bible, and what that means and how uh, Jesus is very present in all those moments. Uh, But before we get going, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for food. Thank you for friends and family and for people that we don't know that we hope to know. Thank you that you are in relationship with us and that you desire communion and community with us. Amen. So where do you think the very, very first idea of eating appears in the Bible? Think through thinking, where does eating, hunger, first appear in the Bible? Yeah, maybe maybe with the fruit in the beginning. Actually, it's even earlier than that. (laughs) When God created heavens and the earth, he he created all these different aspects to it, and then he created humans in his image, it says. And then right after that, we get this verse. This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to that, or we also have it up on the screen. And this is what it said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, so here we see Jesus, or God, <laughs> saying, here's a menu, here's food, have at it. And if you look at this, uh, if, what is, if you ask yourself, what does it mean to be human? First, you could say maybe being made in the image of God, but what does that mean? What, what exactly does that mean? And there are many things, I think. But if you only looked at the first chapter of the Bible, the very beginning, you would see this section here. And there's three things that really stand out to me. One is community, multiplying, developing, going across the earth, becoming many. And there's also ruling over the earth, taking care of the earth or the world, right? Subduing it, it says, I think is what it says here. Taking care of it. And then the third one is eating. <laughs> eating seems to be a huge part of being human. And I don't know about you, but I think that throughout my life I've typically thought of eating and hunger as more of a result of the fall that Eric talked about just a few seconds ago, where they ate the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to. And then death and pain and uh, just hurt came into the world, and with it, this hunger that drove us towards needing to eat things, because we don't want to die, right? Because hunger is integral to life. And yet we see that when God created the earth and it was perfect and there was no death, no pain, no hurt, there was hunger. Hunger is being full of human. Hunger and desiring food is part of the way God created us. The first present God gives us in chapter 1 of the Bible is a menu and says, have at it. It's pretty cool. And interestingly enough, you might notice that there's no meat mentioned in this section. That's actually in chapter 8, after the flood with uh, Noah. Um, he's making a covenant with Noah, and then he says, and you can eat, all the, you can eat animals on the earth. So that's when meat came in. Uh, later on in the story. And then God puts these two trees in the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, you're supposed to eat. The tree of life, for eternal life, to be in communion with God, you eat from this tree of life. Then the other one, the one that you're not supposed to eat from, breaks the communion with God or causes it to be uh, challenged, to not be as it's supposed to be. Right? So, we have two trees that symbolize relationship with God, and they both are partaken of by eating. And you see, eating is a huge part of being full human, but I think it sounds really obvious, right? Like any human eats. Every human eats. That's part of being human is eating. But we've, I think in my mind at least, I've separated it a lot as being just more utilitarian, although it has been made really beautiful and there's really a lot of creativity in creating food, but still more of a utilitarian thing as opposed to a way of being with God and worshiping God. And as you know, the garden is, was perfect and complete, and then they ate of the forbidden tree. <laughs> and it separated. And God's space and human space became separate. Relationship with God and humankind was estranged, and they left the garden. And the rest of the story of the Bible is about God's space, human space becoming one. The relationship with God and humankind becoming one again. And you'll see multiple instances throughout the Bible of eating and feasting. In fact, it would take, like, seriously, days <laughs> to unpack them all. So we're just going to look through a few. So we're going to go through a few different passages uh, talking about eating in the Old Testament and then uh, in the story of Jesus. 
First one, like talked about, is the Passover. You might have heard of that. Passover is when God uh, rescued Israelites out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God rescued them out of it, and he had them eat while he was doing it. And then after that, he said, every time you eat this Passover meal every year, remember your redemption out of slavery. Remember that I've rescued you. And then the Israelites, after being rescued, were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years out in the desert. And at the beginning of it, they go to this place called Mount Sinai. And that's where God gives them these laws and regulations, the Torah. And then they make a covenant with each other, a promise, a sacred promise to uh, function and work together. And God would be their God and he would lead them if they followed these uh, rules that he instituted. And to to institute the covenant, you know what they did? They ate, (laughs) right? Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders went up on Mount Sinai and they feasted with God. It says they feasted with God and saw his face and saw, saw his presence. And then at the same time, God told them to create this tabernacle. And this tabernacle was a spot, a place for God's presence to dwell in, to be a light among the nations, a place for them to enter into and know that God is present in Israel. And inside the tabernacle, there's an altar. Makes sense, right? Altars are where they would do uh, sacrifices, pour blood out onto it, sort of gross, right? But they'd pour blood onto it, and they would experience God's presence by going in there at certain times of the year by doing certain sacrifices. But there's also a table in the tabernacle. You might be thinking, oh, maybe that's to say God can eat it. Uh, They give food for God. But no, actually, God never says that he needs food from humankind's sacrifices. The other gods around Israel did. That's why the other uh, religions around Israel made sacrifices, was mostly to feed the gods. They believed that they were on earth to uh, raise it to feed the gods' food, and that's why they gave sacrifices, like the Canaanites around them. But there was a table there, and the high priest, every Sabbath, would walk in to the tabernacle and eat bread with God. And it was a symbol of communion between God and humankind, between God and Israel, more specifically. And then they're wandering out in the wilderness still, and they get really, really hungry. So God has manna fall from the sky, or bread of some sort. Really doesn't really describe it very much, but they call it manna. Something falls from the sky and feeds them. And then throughout the rest of Israelite history, there are these feasts. Many, many feasts that celebrate God's goodness, celebrate his rescuing of them, celebrate his redemption, celebrate his love. And I'll list a few of them. There's the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Then we come to the Gospels, and God becomes human. And how does God become human, and what, or what does he do with humankind as he is a human and walking around on earth? It says the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, came eating and drinking. In fact, he was eating so much that the Pharisees, who were the keepers of the law uh, around that time, said that he was a glutton and a drunkard. Here, let's look at that verse. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I have a question. How much eating and drinking does someone have to do for someone to start labeling them a glutton and a drunkard? How much time would he have to have been spent spending around a table for people to notice him being like, hey, 
you're this rabbi and you're healing a lot of people and you're claiming to be God, but you're eating way too much and drinking way too much with people around you. Now, they obviously had an agenda. They're trying to cast him in a negative light and they weren't huge fans of him. But still, there had to be a reason why they said that. So God became human and communed with humankind by eating and drinking with them. New Testament scholar Robert Karras says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. The entire gospel, he says, he's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And you read it, and sometimes it's confusing, because they'll say in chapter 5, like, oh, he sat down, was eating with people. Then there'll be like four or five chapters of different parables and teachings, and, you want, if, you, and if you just start at chapter 7, you won't realize that at chapter 5 is where it set the context where he's actually eating with people. And we don't always realize that. I started exploring this about a year ago when we uh, began the community dinner, and now all the time when I'm reading the Gospels, I'm like, whoa, okay, he's eating there, still eating, still eating. Oh, there's another. And then he's just always eating. <laughs> Once you see it, it opens up your eyes, and I'm telling you, you'll notice it everywhere. And then his parables. He tells all these parables, and so many of them have to do with food. The parable of the wedding feast, where uh, the, the guy invites all the people from the streets because the higher class people wouldn't come to his wedding. Parable where he says that if you're eating with somebody, you shouldn't sit in the place of honor, but should take a humble position. Parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal son tells his father that he doesn't love him, that he wants him dead, and he wants his inheritance, and then he goes off into a foreign land, spends it lavishly, and then comes back to the father. And the father does what? He throws him a feast, a huge feast to celebrate his son's returning home. There's this really cool story. This is in uh, Luke chapter 5 talked about this where um, Jesus is eating with people. And let's read this. It's Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Remember as you read this, that Jesus is God. He is human and he is God. And see, God is reaching out to those that have been estranged from society, those who have been ostracized, and he's eating with them. And the thing about the Pharisees is they didn't realize that they also needed a doctor. It wasn't just the tax collectors and the, the sinners, as they had labeled them. They were just as much sinning as, they, as the tax collectors. They just wouldn't admit it. And then we come to the Passover meal. Passover meal was the night before Jesus' death, his crucifixion. And they're remembering God's redemption, remember, his rescuing them out of Israel. And so Jesus says, uh, as you eat this Passover meal, remember me. Remember my blood spilled for you, my body broken for you. We practice this every Sunday. But what we sometimes forget is that when the disciples and Jesus were together, it wasn't just a cup, and a piece of bread. There was a full meal. They're eating meat. Now, they stopped in the middle and practiced this, but there's also meals surrounding the whole event. And this was a sign of the new covenant, the new covenant poured out by his blood where Jesus defeats death and conquers evil. Then we come to Acts. So Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and he's ascended. We come to Acts, the very beginning of Acts. All the disciples uh, are gathered around, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit, and then this is the verse says, this is Acts chapter 2. Then they, they, referring to the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
to the breaking of bread, meaning eating. Now the early church, after Jesus left, is following Jesus' model and is experiencing teaching, they're praying together, they're fellowshipping together, and they're eating together, all in one setting. And as the, as the early church progressed, and for the first 300 years of church, of Christianity, it was actually met over something called, they called it the agape feast. Agape means love in Greek, so the love feast. They had this love feast, is what they called it, where they would eat together, they'd worship God together, they'd do exactly what Acts 2.42 is talking about. They'd learn more about God together. And that continued until Constantine became emperor and Christianity was made the religion of the empire. And so it, then it adopted the customs of the Roman uh, pagan religions and adapt, adopted the grandeur of it and the big temples, uh, and it changed. Now, they did have a liturgy. That's something sometimes uh, people forget about, I think. But they did have a liturgy. It says that there was teaching, there was prayer. They had something they followed, but it was all around a table. And then the very big end of the Bible... In Revelation, we hear about this future hope that we have of heaven and earth. Remember I talked about at the beginning, heaven and earth, God's space, human space have become separate. The very end of the Bible talks about them becoming one and being reunited as they were supposed to be. And that's celebrated by a marriage supper of the Lamb, is what it calls it. Marriage supper of the Lamb. A huge feast to celebrate God's space, human space becoming one. The reunification of God and mankind and the restoration, final restoration of relationship. And that's why every Monday night, we have this community dinner. We have it to imitate what Jesus did over the table. Now, I have a couple questions for you to uh, think about with the person next to you. Just one or two minutes. First one is, why do you think feasting is such a huge part of worshiping God? Number two, why do you think Jesus spent so much of his ministry around the table? So with the person next to you, maybe discuss these questions real quick.
Okay, uh, anybody have any thoughts on, we'll just take a couple answers, can't spend all day, and I know that you could probably talk about this for a while, so maybe you can talk about this as well downstairs where we have snacks together, right? So continue this conversation afterwards, but would somebody like to share why they think feasting is such a huge part of worshiping God? Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on why feasting is such a huge part of worshiping God in the Bible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's something we can do all the time because we eat all the time. Like in our society said, we eat three times a day, seven days a week. (laughs) So we can always be worshiping God by eating. It's good. Nice. (laughs) Jerry. We also thought that when you're around the table, Mm -hmm. you're focused. Yeah. You're not wandering around from room to room. Yeah. If you want to eat, you got to stay there. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Totally. So why do you think Jesus spent so much of his ministry around the table? Is, is that Amy? I can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a way to use what people do already all the time to connect with them. Is that what you're saying? Okay, nice. Good. One other thought, Lynette? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it takes time. It's something we need. Totally. So I had a few thoughts, and I'll sort of go through different thoughts I've had, and I've, I've been thinking about contemplating this past week quite a bit, and it's been really interesting. I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about food <laughs> through this, which has been very fun. First one is, already been said, it's so simple and universal. Everybody eats. Many times, a church is a reflection of its culture. You know, if you go to uh, places in Africa, it's not going to be the same it is here. But food is universal. Everybody eats. You don't even need to speak the same language to eat together. You need to speak the same language to understand what I'm saying right now. (laughs) But you don't to eat together. It also breaks down barriers. And we've talked about this in our dinner church groups quite a bit. And I don't really quite understand how it breaks down barriers so well. But here's a few thoughts. One is, I think it's very vulnerable. Many times, has anybody here been on a first date? (laughs) Right? Have you ever been on a first date and you you think as you're eating or as you're ordering... Okay, I'm not going to get the taco because that's going to be really messy. It's going to get food everywhere. You're processing all these different things. I hope I'm not chewing with my mouth open. Okay, I got to listen really well. Uh, but I also want to eat my food because I'm hungry. Uh, that's always a problem for me. I don't want something messy, but I'm also hungry, so I, I need to eat. Uh, and it sort of breaks down barriers because you're forced to be vulnerable and you're forced to listen. If you want to eat, you need, 
You need to stop talking and listen <laughs> and eat. In many places in the world, you actually eat with your hands, so it's really messy. It's not very clean. I mean, if you ever try eating rice and pasta with your hands, oof, it is messy, I'll tell you that. That's where it, what it was like where I used to live, and the first few times, it was just like rice everywhere, all over my face, all over my hands, sauces everywhere. It was just a mess. I felt sort of stupid. But they were really kind to me and loving to me, and I felt embraced into the culture. It broke down these barriers. But I also think that feasting points in multiple directions. I think it helps us remember what God has done. It points backwards. Helps us hope, reminds us to hope for what God is going to do, points forwards. And it's also very tangible and real, and it's in the present moment. Let's go through those three things. So first one, remembering. Remember, I said it again. Remember the feasts in the Israelites' culture were to remember what God has done. So every time we eat, we can remember what God has done in our lives. We can remember Jesus' death and resurrection, the sacrifices he made on behalf of humanity. We can remember God's goodness in our own life through different trials and pains and struggles that we have gone through. We can remember what he has done. Feasting also points forwards to the marriage supper of the Lamb that I talked about. The time when everything will be made complete and perfect. When heaven and earth will become one. That is our Christian hope, the resurrection of all things, the resurrection of all creation. And every time we eat, we can remember that, hope for that, long for that, desire that. Because that is symbolized in the age to come by a feast. Then also, it's worshiping God in the present. In the present. In the Old Testament, the word for soul is nefesh. Everybody repeat, nefesh. Nefesh. All right, so it's sometimes translated soul. Actually, it's said about 700 and something times in the Old Testament, that word nefesh, but only 70 times, 10%, is it translated as soul. And the other times it's translated as lives, life, body, myself, I. It really is a word that encompasses the entire being of somebody. But the basic meaning is throat. The root meaning is throat. And we have words like this in English. For example, if I say, give me a head count, that means how many bodies are there in this room? How many bodies? How many people are there? How many living people are there here in this room? That's the same with the word throat. Because if you think about it, you're living 3,000 years ago. You don't have all the science background that all of you have. <laughs> Imagine you're thinking every day, okay, there's three things I need every day to survive. I need to breathe, I need food, and I need water. And they all go through my throat. Therefore, my throat is intrinsically connected to life. Hence why it gets translated as life, soul, myself, my entire being. And uh, whenever somebody was a murderer, they'd call them a nefesh slayer. A soul slayer, we might say, but really it was a throat killer. Yeah. And then when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and they were really thirsty, they yelled out, they said, our nefesh is dried up, our throat is dried up. <laughs> and then one of my favorites, and this has just opened up my eyes to this psalm, it's a really popular psalm, uh, Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I remember the word for soul in Hebrew is nefesh. My throat pants for you. My soul thirsts, my throat thirsts for you. It's this real desire that God is much more real and it's not as ethereal and not, it's very earthy and organic. And that God is the one that provides for our soul, for our entire being. 
as I was thinking about this idea, and we're going, I'm going to take it one step further, and I, I don't, this is just me thinking about it, doing a, a, um, like a thought process through it. So imagine you're living 3,000 years ago, and you're an Israelite, and God says every time you kill a lamb, you have to drain it of all of its blood, because that's what they're supposed to do, and you cook it fully, well done, there's no blood in it. And then you're also told that the blood is the life of a creature. So it says, the blood is the life of the creature. And you should drain it all. Now, every time you eat something that is completely dead, you consume it, and then it becomes life within you and sustains you. I can't help but think of resurrection every time I, I started processing that. Something that's dead is coming to life within me. Like Jesus, who was dead, came to life for us all. God is making things new within us every day as we eat, as we drink, as we think about him, as we remember him. He's making things new within us and turning life, into, turning death into life within us. And I think the Israelites recognized that. They recognized that God was their provider, that he was the sustainer, and that he was the bread of life. And that's why when Jesus came onto the scene and said, I'm the bread of life, they were ticked. Like, no, you're not. You're not God. And many times, I think I've read that as a, in a very symbolic sense, and I think there is symbolism in it as well, but there's also something very real in that God is the sustainer. He is the provider. He literally is the bread of life that fell for the manna, for the, the Israelites in the wilderness, that provided them manna when they were hungry. So every time we eat, we are recognizing our reliance on something greater than us. We're recognizing our reliance on whoever cooked it, whoever gathered the food. We're recognizing our reliance on the sun and ultimately on God. And also, the early church had this idea that God or Jesus could show up at any moment while they're eating, which makes sense because he spent so much time around the table with them. And then there's these stories at the end of of, uh, Gospel of Luke, and we will look at this one. This happens right after Jesus' resurrection, but not everybody knows he's resurrected, and some disciples, they went to the tomb, and they saw it was empty. And then they were saddened, oh man, somebody stole his body, walking along this road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up and talks to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. For some reason, they don't recognize him. They're talking, he's opening up scriptures, then they reach their destination, they say, oh, it's getting dark, why don't you spend the night with us and eat with us? He says, all right. Walks in, and then this verse. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Here, they knew Jesus through eating with him. And then right after that, the disciples, other disciples are locked in a room and they're really scared because the uh, Pharisees were after people, the Romans were after people, they're just nervous. And Jesus was gone. They didn't, know he's, they didn't believe he was resurrected at this point. Then all of a sudden, they're sitting around this table eating and then, bam, Jesus shows up in the middle of this room. And what's the first thing he does? He eats some bread and eats piece of fish while they are eating. I hope you can see from all this how sacred eating is. That feasting it was something God instituted, something for us to enjoy, something for us to love, and some, a time for us to recognize God as a provider, as a creator of all things. I hope you can also see that Jesus' ministry was centered around the table. And it's beautiful. At this point, I'd like to invite the worship team up as we near the end of this sermon. Uh, we are going to have one last song to finish the sermon. Uh, but before we sing that song, I just want to remind you uh, what we mentioned before at the beginning. 
that we as a church are hoping to spend time with people over the sacred Jesus table that we do sometimes three times a day. Our challenge today is twofold. First one is invite someone to eat with you at the Jesus table. Invite somebody you've never eaten with or maybe only eaten it with once. Invite somebody to eat with you and get to know them. Number two is treat every meal as sacred. Treat every meal as a time to remember what God has done for you, to hope and long for what he's going to do for you, and to realize that he is at work and present in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for food. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are a provider. And thank you so much that you want relationship with us. Thank you that you have invited us to the table to eat with you, to break down barriers, and to know you more and more. I pray that we would go out and do as you did in our community, that we'd eat with people, we'd love people, and we'd have communion with people. In Jesus' name, amen.